This meeting is being recorded. Adé. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining today for the AIAA Los Angeles Las Vegas section um, special event. Uh, we are trying to come back to the dinner event. Uh, uh, normally, we will try to do this in places like North of Roman, but because security issue, and this is a really wonderful room with this uh, remote teaching facility. So we really try to uh, benefit more from this nice facility. Uh, and it's very close to major aerospace company here. So you will see. Um, so today we have a distinguished speaker. She is uh, actually an expert, uh, independent scholar for space policy. Um, she is also a book author. And uh, she is going to uh, talk about the international global space development. So let's see. Uh, before that, we have a few words uh, about AIAA. So we first thank AIAA headquarters for providing this wonderful uh, Zoom platform. And we highly appreciate the Longdale Library uh, give us this uh, amazing room, just uh, really amazing. And this uh, uh, remote teaching facility is just uh, so amazing. So if you have any question, uh, actually after the presentation, you are welcome to speak out if you are online. And, but you can also type in Q&A box or chat room uh, but it, it's better to speak up for interaction and uh, a few words about AIAA is <clears throat> a nonprofit organization promoting aerospace and our purpose is to encourage in original research and uh, you know also you know a career development and also improve public understanding and, uh, so our current president is uh, uh, Laura Miss McGill who is a lady uh, the executive director uh, Mr. Dan Dunbarker. Um, me, I'm uh, Ken Louie. I'm the new section chair for the LALB section starting June this year. Uh, so uh, AIAA, I'm not going to repeat everything, but AIAA is uh, a very strong commu uh, community, professional community. Uh, we have more than 90 years, 90 plus years of aerospace leadership. The key word is uh, the uh, AWA came from a merger in 1962 from two distinct organizations. One is uh, one was founded by the Wright brothers in 1920s. The other one was founded by uh, Robert Gardner in also in the 1920s. So AWA really has great history. Uh, we have international presence, but it's basically a national organization with headquarters in Western Virginia. So it's very good and very well known for networking and career development. So we have different level of membership, uh, professional YP, 50% discount, uh, student membership, educator is free, high school student is also free. <clears throat> and uh, this is our dedicated uh, council member uh, from different uh, organizations. For example, with Sherry from JPL. Uh, our former section chair is Dr. Jeff Roussel from Raytheon, and uh, he is now being promoted to education director in region six. Um, there are just many of very, uh, and our treasurer Lee actually worked in North of Roman. So we have people from different aerospace companies uh, or uh, practice. So uh, just quickly, AIAA has a lot of, you know, if you join AIAA, you enjoy a lot of benefit. Uh, so one of them is the uh, engage, AIAA Engage platform, daily launch, and the Aerospace America, a really wonderful professional magazine. And you also got a great discount uh, to join, attend uh, AIAA forums and conferences. 
And the LWA membership also have this uh, LWA Foundation Industry Guide and uh, you know uh, publications. LWA is very well known for uh, very professional, top leading uh, publication journals. And also Korean, good for you. And if you are a member, you are eligible for become uh, like a fellow, associate fellow, fellow, honorary fellow. Uh, for example, you might have heard uh, Dr. Bill Gerstenmeier. He was the former um, NASA Human Space Flight Director. He is now a consultant for SpaceX. He's in this area. And uh, Gwyn Shadwell, SpaceX, she's also our uh, honorary fellow. Uh, and you can see actually this gentleman here, uh, uh, Mr. Steve Izakowicz, is actually the president of Aerospace Corporation. So we are really highly well connected. So if you are a member, you can also get uh, awards for your contribution, teaching, publication, education, whatever, leadership. For example, this gentleman here, uh, he's going to come here to give a lecture next year. Uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Bellalacqua is actually the inventor of the F-35 diesel engine. So he is our Airway Fellow, but also the uh, Guggenheim Award. Awardee, and also we have uh, this present of Honda aircraft. So if you join membership, you open a, a wide new door for you. Uh, student membership is that you eligible become, you know, uh, you know, qualified for for scholarship, and uh, you get discount for major airline forum. For example, uh, in October later this, uh, next month, we have this Ascent conference, Ascent conference in Las Vegas. Uh, so just a few words about Southern California. So right now in this room, uh, nearby we have Northrop Grumman, Boeing, and uh, SpaceX. And of course, the plus a lot of great aerospace companies, as you probably heard, there's a new company called Slingshot. Slingshot, uh, actually right here in El Segundo. Uh, they're doing like a space traffic type of things. Uh, then you have, we also have a Long Beach presence. Then we have this relativity space launcher. Uh, launcher is in Hawthorne right here. Then we have electric hybrid aircraft, this Ampere. And the Raytheon, Honeywell. And then we keep doing events. For example, we have today's event, then we have uh, next next Monday, we're going to have a watch party for the DART mission uh, for planetary defense. It's very exciting, please join us. And we also have GIS, quantum physics, and uh, we're going to downtown on October 6th uh, for space architecture. Uh, you know, imagine this fancy building, you go to Mars and the moon. And uh, we also have 3D printing. How do you put into education with learning for calculus? Then we have the, uh, in the same room here, we are going to have sustainable aviation design of electric and uh, hybrid aircraft by Dr. Bradley, who is our AWA fellow. Uh, is a very interesting course. And then we have a uh, new set of opportunity. We have the Making Space for Women event right in this room. This is our Airway Fellow, uh, Miss Mary Wheaton. Uh, this is actually the chief scientist in Space Force, the high school student educator, uh, NASA scientist. And this is uh, a young professional from North of Roman. She was formerly our student member. So just tell you that uh, we are trying to keep everybody happy, connected to each other. Uh, they also have YouTube podcast. So today we are really um, honored to have Dr. Namrata Nami uh, Gaswami to uh, give the uh, uh, talk today. Uh, as mentioned, she's a scholar, independent scholar 
I'm, I don't want to read everything going through, but basically you can see uh, she's involved with many things like the great power politics in the Thunderbird School of Global Management in the ASU. Uh, he has uh, many experience, you know, from New Delhi, you know, Norway, so many institutes. So, so uh, she is really just amazing. You read her bio, it's just amazing. So today we are here to learn from her because right now space is so hot. It's the, the, the hottest topic. Everybody is doing space, you know. Uh, so it's uh, uh, international development uh, play a very important part of, of the uh, human space exploration. So without further ado, let's welcome uh, Dr. Gaswami for today's uh, exciting presentation. Uh, thank you, Ken. And can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Oh, great. Thank you. Let me... Uh... I think you'll have to. Um, yes. We yes. Start share already. Yeah. Let me share my screen. So. Okay. So uh, thank you so much for those words. And as I was uh, listening to you uh, talk about AIAA and the difference. Uh, projects, engagements, including women in space. It was really exciting. Also some of the uh, companies you talked about in Southern California. So today in the time that I have been given, uh, I'm going to talk about the emerging space environment. And in fact, uh, as Ken mentioned, uh, Peter Gerritsen and I had written a book called Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. And in that book, we actually studied the case studies of China, India, UAE. And uh, we basically argued that the space environment is actually changing today. And as Ken was mentioning, space is actually becoming very much a part of society again, but actually from a very different perspective. So this is something that our book captures and my research work is basically uh, aimed at showcasing through data and through studying the countries of uh, China, India, Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, to tell you that actually the discourse on space is changing across these different countries. And that is something I think is really important to be captured. So one of the important departure is that during the Cold War, space was a lot about the race between the US and the Soviet Union, and it was more about technology demonstration. It was a lot about ideological capability. So if the US went to the moon first, it meant that the US capitalist market economy was a better system vis-a-vis -vis, communism, which was what the Soviet Union was projecting. But that was actually a very Cold War based bilateral bipolar discourse. Today, actually, the discourse in space is a lot about economic development. It's a lot about human inspiration. But it's also a lot about looking at space from a resource extraction perspective as well. So Ken mentioned a particular technology like 3D printing and artificial intelligence, and that's going to play a very critical role in the future of space, especially from countries like China, India, Japan, and South Korea. The other important thing is that the Apollo kind of mission that was about technology demonstration that was about sending humans to the moon for a few days is not the kind of mission Asian countries are actually looking at. And that's why I title my talk that Asia is actually setting the tone 
in terms of changing the space discourse from space exploration, space science to space development. So it's a much more broader concept that includes the economic return that space is bringing to society. And so the Apollo type missions of uh, landing a person on the moon is not the focus of Asia. It's more about robotic missions to build capacity so that they can establish permanent presence on a particular area. For example, the lunar South Pole, which is one of the concentration of countries like China, India, and Japan today. The other important departure in terms of space is that the rise of the private sector. We heard from the introduction that there is the rise of, of course, SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, Relativity Space, but there's also a huge increase in space funding and space companies in Asia. So for example, in China, there are about 104 Chinese space companies. In Japan, there is iSpace, which is planning to go to the moon by 2040 to establish presence. India's private space sector, and you'll see through the presentation, is actually a very emerging uh, concept that's becoming critical for India's space capability as well. And so that's how the discourse on space from the Cold War, which was very much led by government space program, is changing to becoming a lot about government private space enterprise, and which is a very new phenomenon in the post-Cold War period. The other important thing which I'll talk about in terms of Asia is that there is a lot of fusion between space, civil space and military space activity. And that's something that there is a growing concern that despite the fact that space is seen as a province of mankind, according to the Outer Space Treaty, there is also the growing use of space for military command and control, nuclear command and control for missile navigation tracking. And this is a development that is very much uh, present in almost all the countries of Asia. And I'll point through the data that I have collected as to why I make that argument. Now, in terms of uh, looking at launches, of course, the US had some of the largest launches in 2021, but China is actually catching up in terms of space launches. And one thing that we need to remember is that China does not have reusable rockets as yet, but they're hoping to build reusability by 2025. Now, India launched about 10 uh, space uh, crafts in 2021 and hope to actually increase that this year. So you can see that space is becoming a lot about critical infrastructure, about building satellite navigation capability, satellite internet, but also about accessing the resources in space. So one of the most important, interesting de uh, development is a shift in the conceptual thinking. And this is something I think in the US, the uh, space community has yet not uh, become accustomed to. So when I say a conceptual thinking, in Asia, there is basically an emotion of hope. So space is seen as something that is going to develop Asian livelihoods. It's seen as something that has very direct relevance to society. Space is seen as being building, a, for example, if you're a farmer in say India, you view space as helping you because space satellites offer you patterns in terms of weather prediction, in terms of where you can actually yield your crop. Uh, and so it's a very critical component of your societal development. And so this interesting essay that a French scholar, uh, Dominique Mozzi had written was that despite the fact that space is so much connected to national security, there is an emotion of fear in terms of militarization. And then in the Middle East, there is the emotion of humiliation because of the conflicts that has been happening in Iraq, for example, in Syria and Libya. In Asia, there is actually this great resurgence 
of entrepreneurial activity and space is becoming a very critical component of the particular activity. So countries like China, Japan, India, South Korea are becoming critical in this discourse. And what is interesting is that all these countries view the moon as a strategic asset. And also they are developing a concept that the moon is important by itself and not as something that you use to go somewhere else. So this is where the lunar programs of China, Japan, India, South Korea deviate from the US Artemis program because in the Artemis program that the US put out, the moon is seen as a pit stop, as a place where you can learn to build space capacity to get to Mars. So Mars is the ultimate focus. But for China, the moon is intrinsically important for its own value. If you listen to some of the uh, statements and policy documents that China has put out, the moon is important for its resources. The moon is important to understand Earth itself. The moon is important to hear out into the universe. And it's basically conceptualized through their moon goddess, the Chamar. And India also views the moon as intrinsically important for its own sake. South Korea has actually launched a lunar orbiter to the moon and hoping to study the lunar surface. And they also view the moon as intrinsically important and so does Japan. And so you can see that they are actually challenging this concept that the moon is important only because it offers you a celestial body that you can utilize to go deeper into space. They argue that no, the moon has societal significance, civilizational connection by itself. Now, one of the most important thinkers on China's space program is Bao Weiming, who is a spokesperson for their space program. And is also part of the missile development capability and their lunar program. So he gave a very interesting presentation last year in which he argued that for China, the moon actually is also seen as an economic investment. It's not just about sending a taikonaut to the moon. It's actually about thinking about lunar resources as adding about $50 trillion annually to your economic development by say 2050. And he lays out why he makes that case. So lunar resources like aluminum, titanium, iron ore, water ice that can be used for rocket fuel and developing human presence builds into that economic return of investment. Japan also has a very similar perspective. In fact, a Japanese space agency, JAXA, and iSpace, which is a Japanese private company, are hoping to go and establish some kind of settlement on the moon by 2040. And they also hope to be able to prospect the lunar surface for resources using 3D printing for manufacturing, artificial intelligence, and robotics. And India has actually signed a cooperation with Japan to go to the moon together by 2024. And as you know, South Korea just last in August launched their first lunar orbiter through a Falcon 9 SpaceX rocket, and they hope to build into that capacity in the next few years. So you can see that in Asia, the conception of space is becoming a lot about space development and how do you can utilize space resources for societal benefit. Now, what are some of China's long-term goals? So this is based on my assessment of China's, uh, for example, their white paper on space, uh, the documents that some of their space uh, agencies have put out, for example, the China National Space Administration, the China Academy of Space Technology, as, as well as some of the interviews that some of their major scientists have given. So one of the technology that China is investing in is a technology called space-based solar power. 
So space-based solar power is a technology that has been around for several decades, as you know. And so today, China is actually one of the lead actors in investing in a capacity for this renewable energy. And I'll show you what are the kind of investments they are doing in a few minutes. The second important goal that China is building in terms of a project is to look at if we can actually have the capability to extract resources from the lunar surface and from asteroids. And so the argument is that asteroids, for example, a small asteroid like 3554 Amun, which is about two miles in kilometer, uh, has about $20 trillion worth of resources, platinum, titanium, iron ore. And so if you can actually go to that particular asteroid and extract its resources, you actually are, and are able to bring it back to Earth or use it for deep space exploration and development, you benefit. And so they connect it to their deep space capability as well. And in my study of China space program, including during my field work, what I actually looked at is that China has a very interesting capability of investing in long-term goals. So some of the goals that I'm talking about were announced around 2002, and they have a long-term plan. And that is to achieve these goals by 2049, which is the 100 year uh, centennial uh, celebration of the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And so they are capable of investing in a mission because of the fact that they are run in a one party system, which is the Communist Party of China, and that adds to their advantage as well. Now, some of China's grand strategic thinking is very important to keep in mind when you think about China's space program. One is that it's really critical for China because of a century of humiliation, the historical context of being invaded by outside powers, because of the fact that if you look at this particular map, China doesn't want to repeat uh, Malacca Strait like uh, dilemma where you're dependent on other nations to actually access resources and bring it back to China. So they don't want to have a similar context in space. And so they argue that it's very important to maintain access and use of space as per the Outer Space Treaty. And as I mentioned before, a 10 trillion annually return uh, economic capability from the Earth Moon zone. China also wants to play a very critical role in influencing the rules of space commerce, as well as setting the international regulatory framework. As you know, the Outer Space Treaty was signed between the US, the USSR and the United Kingdom. And of course, 110 member nations have now ratified it, but the framework was set by the major powers during the Cold War. And so today, given the fact that the concept of space has changed, it's becoming a lot about space development and space utilization, China wants to play a very critical role in being a major power in conceptualizing those regulations that might come when you have a future of space mining and space settlement. In China, there is also a very critical investment in civil military integration as per their 2021 national defense law. And they view space from an economic purpose and from an exploration, exploitation, and utilization perspective. And this is very much relevant in the white papers that they have put up. Now, some of China's strategic culture is important to understand when we think about China's space program and how Asia sets the discourse. So space is connected to territoriality. So space is becoming very much a domain in the Chinese thinking. It's become part of air, land, sea, and air and cyber. And they connect it to the concept of resources, very similar to how they're connecting their resource capability, for example, in Tibet, where the waters of China flow from Tibet, in Antarctica, where there are resources that the China Polar Institute argues is worth millions of dollars, as well as the fact that China by 2050 will have a very large population, fossil fuels might run out, 
And so space resources like space-based polar power will become very important and could become core and legitimate interest in the Chinese strategic conceptualization. Now, so, so where is China given those goals that I have mentioned and which are so critical to understand? So if you look at this space-based solar power uh, concept that I mentioned, uh, the China National Space Administration, which is their major space policymaking body, put out this very interesting graph, and I'll point to the graph in the next slide, but they argue that the Long March 9, which is their major rocket that they are developing by 2030, which will be their heavy lift rocket, uh, capable of launching about 140 metric tons to low, low Earth orbit, will be the main rocket that will be used to develop space-based solar power satellites. So space-based solar power is a concept that argues that what is so critical is that sunlight in space is 24 hours. It does not suffer from the problems that ground solar suffers, for example, weather, cloud cover, night. So the idea is that you build satellites in space that is going to be able to collect solar energy in space and then you beam it back to rectennas on Earth through microwave transmission of energy and then turn that into electricity. And so China has actually put out certain timelines and this is basically their roadmap for space-based solar power. And this was put out by the China Academy of Space Technology this year. And so they have revised their roadmap. So by 2026, they want to actually be able to beam a kilowatt level microwave beaming from low earth orbit by 2026 as a demonstration of capability. And then by 2030, they want to achieve a very high level of microwave beaming and by 2050 to actually have a gigawatt level uh, microwave beaming of power. Now, what is so important is that for China, space-based solar power is being viewed as a renewable energy because of the fact that it is renewable. And also very importantly, it can actually be used to develop the kind of life that China wants to have by 2050. And Wang Shishi, who's the father of China's Long March program, points out that this is a strategic investment for China. And this is very critical if China wants to be a developed nation as per some of the policy guidance of the Communist Party by 2050, which is a critical year for them. Now the Long March 9, which is their rocket, as you see, they have put out three goals for the Long March 9. Uh, they hope to make it reusable by 2030. They're working on that particular concept, which will actually be an interesting competition to Starship, for example, which is very similar in its uh, capability to launch about 140 metric tons. But the only difference is that Starship, which might be tested this year, will be reusable in three stages. The Long March 9, as it stands today, is not reusable. It's an expendable rocket like the Space Launch System that is going to be launched next week if NASA succeeds the third time. So one of the major goals for the Long March 9 is to launch a Mars robotic exploration, which they hope to achieve by 2040. And the second mission is of course, to have a manned Mars mission, but the most important mission I think in their conceptualization of renewable energy is constructing orbital solar power satellites. And if you think about the ambition, it's pretty high with a 10,000 megawatt capacity and with some 50,000 tons. So requiring about 620 plus launches. So it's a, a lot of launches to actually construct this capability, but they want to do it because of the important uh, argument they make that this is something that will develop China's long-term sustainability as a society, if I may, and deal with climate change, which fossil fuels add to. 
So the second important goal that we talked about in terms of China is their focus on the moon. And so some of the uh, programs that China has actually already achieved in uh, the last few years is that in 2019, China became the first country in the world to land a robotic mission on the lunar far side. And that was the Chang'e 4 mission. And it's actually still active today. And they have a rover that is actually prospecting and studying the lunar surface. And then by 2024, China hopes to send the Chang'e 6, which is aimed at bringing samples back from the South Pole. And as I mentioned, Wu Bering, and I'll uh, point to a slide where he tells you why the South Pole is important. Uh, and so they want to achieve that because of their long-term goal of establishing a research station on the moon in collaboration with Russia by 2036. And as you see, they do not have goals for a human mission as yet. They want to build that robotic capacity to be able to have sustainable presence. And once they have that sustainable presence, they want to send humans for a much more longer stay. Now, in March of this year, Wu Wering, who's the chief designer of China's lunar exploration program, he gave an interesting interview in which he pointed out that the Chang'e 6 will attempt, as I pointed out, to bring back about two kilograms of sample from the lunar poles. And in Wu Wering's conceptualization, why is the moon important? It's because if you're able to manufacture and construct rockets, for example, on the moon using lunar resources, the moon's gravity is one sixth of Earth, which means that it is easier to send probes from the moon than it is from Earth. I was very recently, uh, I recently visited the space launch system uh, pad and just before it was uh, to launch. And what I noticed was that in fact, 90% of the rocket is fuel and just the top is their uh, Orion capsule. So in, on the moon, you would not need to do that. You wouldn't need to have so much fuel that the rocket has to fight Earth's gravity. And that is why Wu Wering, who's actually their chief architect for China's lunar program, points out that China's lunar program is a lot about being a desire and an ambition to be able to utilize those resources to build the capacity to go to deeper probes with a much more efficient economic and technological system. And I think it's actually pretty interesting that he argues in that particular context, changing the entire understanding of space programs as we view it based on Earth. Now, China's Mars mission, very critical. China is the first Asian country to independently land on the Mars surface. Uh, in fact, uh, there are three missions entering Mars orbit, landing on the surface, and sending back uh, images from Mars has been successful. And some of the images you see are from the Chinese rover. And so China actually hopes to then build a Mars capacity, which has been put out by Wang Shizhang, who's the head of the China Academy of Launch Vehicle Technology in his presentation on space transportation for human Mars exploration. And he's one of the head, he's actually the head of the, uh, the basic uh, Chinese space company that deals with the Mars program. So if you look out some of the ambitions that they have put out through the China Academy of Launch Vehicle Technology is that they hope to build a south, a polar, a lunar a south pole capability, but also to build a Mars sample return by 2030. And then to build a robotic exploration capability of a site by 2035, a human mission by 2037, which is interesting because on the moon, their, their human mission is about 2036 and they hope to achieve a human mission to Mars by 2037 and building a Mars base by 2041. And one of the technology that China has prioritized today is nuclear propulsion. 
And so the argument given by the scientists looking into this in the China Academy of Sciences, who I spoke to during my field work, is that if you have nuclear propulsion, you're able to bring down the time it takes to go from Earth to Mars by several months. So it's a technology that will become a game changer. So the third mission that I talked about in terms of China is, of course, asteroid mining. And so this year, China will launch the Zhenghe mission that will be going to near-Earth asteroid 2016 HO3. And they hope to return about 200 to 1,000 gram sample to study it. And they, of course, want to go much more further by 2030. And this is a collaboration between Russia and China in terms of a joint asteroid mission. Now, China also has a low Earth orbit satellite constellation, very similar to Star SpaceX's Starlink. They hope to launch that by 2030. It's called their National Network Satellite Internet Project. And they've already filed about 12,992 satellite launches, satellites to be launched as per the International Telecommunication Union to low Earth orbit. And what is interesting is that in 2020, the China National Development and Reform Commission designated this particular uh, satellite constellation development as a critical infrastructure, which means that this is critical for China's development as a society and gets priority. And this has been actually prioritized in their 14th five-year plan uh, as a long-range project to be developed for Chinese society. So you can see how much importance they are giving at a national level to the satellite constellation development. In the US, this is a very private activity and a private enterprise. In China, this is a state-funded activity, but they're also encouraging their private space sector in building this capacity. Now, this year, China will, of course, accomplish their space station, the Tiangong. They are building it as we speak, and this particular space station will then offer uh, academics across the world to be able to experiment there, as well as to offer an alternative to the International Space Station in which Russia is actually threatening to exit. Uh, they've not done as yet, but because of the Ukrainian conflict, you can see that Russia is stating that it wants to exit the International Space Station by 2030. And if that is the case, and if the ISS runs out of funding, then the Chinese Space Station is going to be alternative for the world. And an update, this is very critical. So according to the 14th five-year plan, China also hopes to build research projects to be able to build this very large satellites in low Earth orbit, which is a part of their space-based solar power capability as well. So if you are unable to construct large satellites in low Earth orbit, uh, you are very, it's very difficult to build the kind of ambition they have with regard to space-based solar power. And so if you look at China's white paper that they put out this year, and this is really critical. So if you want to understand China's space program, you have to look at their white papers, which are their official space policy papers. So uh, they argue that their space industry is a very critical element of the overall national strategy. They want to build new development model based on space to becoming a space power. Space is a critical infrastructure. And then the, in the next five years, so the white paper gives you China's official ambitions in the next five years. And so China wants to build a reusable and heavy lift rockets, as well as lay a foundation for exploring and developing cislunar space, which is a very new concept for China. They didn't put it in the 2016 white paper, but they have put it in the 2021 white paper. And cislunar space is basically the space between the earth and the moon. And then they also want to study uh, basically a capability to have a planetary defense ability, which is the ability to deflect asteroids. And this they want to do in collaboration with Russia. 
China's civilian space capacity today is very good. They have the Long March 5, which is able to uh, take about 25 tons to lower Earth orbit, their major rocket for their Mars and lunar programs. But then, as I said before, they're also building reusability as, uh, through their private space companies like iSpace, which is a very similar name to the Japanese iSpace company, but it's actually a Chinese company. Uh, their reusable rocket is called the Hyperbola, and they hope to achieve it. They're, they're in the project stage since 2021, but they hope to achieve a launch by next year. And then the Long March 9, which I think will be a game changer for them. Now, China also has military space capability. So they have ground-based laser, blinding, disabling. They have anti-satellite capability. Very similar to the United States, China has a space force. It's called the People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Force. And then China also is a leader in quantum satellite capability, and which is a very interesting development from a strategic perspective. Uh, China's cargo launch capability is very high. They have several uh, launch centers, and they're also building a private launch center very close to their one-time space capability, which they hope to achieve in the next few years. So before I move on to India and talk a little bit about India's space program, China's private space sector is something which the U.S. space community does not seem to understand or realize, but it's a very, very serious space capability. The funding for their private space sector is increasing. It was about 3 billion in 2021, but the expectation based on Chinese sources is that it's going to be about 6 billion this year. And some of China's private companies like LinkSpace is investing in reusable launch, but they also have one space which actually already launched to orbit and iSpace. But these particular companies are also looking to develop reusable launch by 2030. And then for internet satellite capability, like 5G satellite constellations, the company to watch is Galaxy Space, which is developing that particular capability. Some of the future timelines that we need to keep in mind where China is actually setting the discourse in Asia and where India is also looking into China's space ambition as well as Japan and South Korea is that the permanent space station by this year, by 2022-2034 asteroid exploration, lunar sample return, as I mentioned, South Pole 2024, which is actually two years from now. And then by 2040, they want to have a nuclear fleet of carrier rockets, which are going to be reusable. So it's very ambitious. We don't know if they'll achieve it, but these are some of the official statements that they have put out in terms of developing their space program. Now let's look at India's space program. So if you look at India's space timelines, they're not as far uh, as China, which is about 2049, but they have India has put out some of their goals by 2025. The, the Indian company that Indian actually state funded agency that put it out is the Vikram Saravai Space Center. And so one of their important uh, long-term goal is to develop satellite-based communication and navigation system. Uh, to enhance imaging capability for the management of natural resources, but also to develop heavy lift launcher capability and reusability. So I think when SpaceX was uh, able to develop the reusable rocket capability, uh, India's launch uh, competitiveness came down because one of India's biggest competitive edge in the international market was its ability to launch very uh, cheaply, which is basically with very low costs. But then if reusability challenges that, India is going to lose out in the global space market for launch, especially of small satellites. So India is also starting to develop a project for reusable launch vehicle, and then to develop a human space flight program. By 2024, India wants to launch Indian citizens to low earth orbit 
basically through the Gagayan mission, which was announced by the prime minister uh, a few years back. Now, India's space capacity, India had the record of launching the highest number of satellites in 2017. Of course, that record was broken by SpaceX recently. Uh, a very low cost Mars mission, about $74 million spent in 2014. India was the first Asian country to enter Mars orbit. And uh, NASA Maven at the same time was much more expensive. So India's space program has that particular advantage. It's very low cost, it's very indigenous. It takes time to develop capacity, but then it's a program that is sustainable because of the level of cost that is involved. And then India has uh, two very capable launch systems. One is the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle and then the Geosynchronous Launch Vehicle, which is the heavy lift rocket, and as well as lunar missions. So India is also developing military space capability, very similar to China. So, and this happened since 2000 with the uh, impact of the India-Pakistan Kargil conflict in the Himalayas, where Indian intelligence was unable to warn Indian military of infiltration across the border. And that was the time India woke up to the critical component of satellite reconnaissance for developing intelligence-based operation. And so today, India has a defense space agency that they established in 2019, as well as an anti-satellite weapon capability, very similar to China, which they uh, demonstrated in 2019. So what is so fascinating from the Indian space perspective is that India views space as a critical component of its rise as a great power. So a lot, a lot of my work is about how great powers view space the, for the US, space is intrinsic, very critical for the United States to maintain its great power position. For China, space is becoming a very important part of their conception of who they are in terms of identity. For India, it is also becoming a very critical component of societal vibrancy, as well as India's aspiration for becoming a major power in the international system. So when India actually uh, tested their anti-satellite weapon capability in 2019, uh, India's Prime Minister at that time, Narendra Modi, he put out a tweet in which he pointed out that India is only the fourth country to acquire such a specialized capability. The entire effort was indigenous and it makes India secure and can further peace and India is now a space power. And in fact, India issued a postal stamp to uh, celebrate that particular capability. So you can see how much societal uh, basically support is there for developing this kind of capability which can sometimes create space debris. And we can talk about that in the question answer and my concern about that. But then these are some of India's perspectives as well in terms of military space capability. Now, what is interesting from the Indian perspective, which I find absolutely fascinating is that India has always been very uh, wary of too much commercialization. The space program has been very state funded. But then in a recent uh, response in parliament, uh, the Mr. Dr. Jatindra Singh, who is the Union Minister of State for Space, pointed out that India's human spaceflight program is not about just sending Indian citizens to low Earth orbit and showing off India's capability, but actually it's about space tourism, which was an extremely interesting development for India because it wants to compete in the market of space tourism that's going to come in the next few years, already a sector that the US has showcased through Blue Origin and SpaceX. And now India wants to enter that particular uh, domain as well. And so one of the interesting developments in the last five years for India is its new space India Limited. So India is starting to invest heavily in the private sector and has established 
government agencies to encourage that effort through budget. The in-space uh, agency is about that, that India will actually fully privatize India's space sector, including their launch system, and will hope to contribute about 9% to the global economy, which is about 400 billion today, but is going to actually become $1 trillion just based on satellite launch and communication by 2040. And so India is very much interested in developing its own space startups and is changing in terms of its uh, space uh, ecosystem and actually becoming a global actor. And so these are some of the uh, interesting uh, institutions that India has established. The New Space India Limited, which is going to become their commercial operator. It's going to give all the licenses, launch service, industry interface, tech transfer, data management for their new space company. And will also enable uh, Indian space companies like uh, Skyroot that's developing uh, private launchers to launch from India's uh, two different uh, spaceports. And then licensing, which is in space, that's going to deal with licensing. And so it's interesting that space policy reform, space regulation, the regulation of the new space sector is becoming a one window system, which was the demand from Indian new space companies because India's bureaucratic structure was very difficult to navigate, not very dissimilar from the US regulatory framework that's becoming much more streamlined. Now, India also views very similar to China that has the Belt and Road uh, Spatial Information Corridor. India also views space as a diplomatic space effort and so India launched the South Asia satellite in 2014 for countries uh, in South Asia. India is part of the Japan-led, the Asia-Pacific Regional Space Agency. India is actually very uncomfortable with the Belt and Road Initiative because of the fact that some of the areas that are included in the Belt and Road Initiative are disputed between India and Pakistan. And so that's one of the main areas of contention for India. And then of course, India-China has a border dispute uh, which is actually several decades now. I actually come from Northeast India, which very, is very close to the Tibet and which is very close to that particular disputed border. And that's actually does have a deep impact on India's thinking. And don't forget that India and China and Pakistan are in a neighborhood that has nuclear weapons and space plays a critical part in nuclear command and control, tracking and missile, and else, as well as ensuring that nuclear weapons are secure and safe. The U.S. is actually a lot in an advantageous position because the U.S. is in a neighborhood where it's the only nuclear weapon state with no neighbors that have nuclear weapons or is threatening to the United States. India has launch capability, as I mentioned, Sriharikota, and they're developing another spaceport here in the southern tip of India, which is very close to the equator, which will have a much more direct route. And also because it wants to showcase itself in an international space for capability so that other countries launches their satellites on Indian rockets. Now, Japan's space policy. So Japan's annual budget for space is about 3.8 billion. For China, it's about 9 billion today, civilian space uh, budget from open source. Uh, we don't know how much China spends on its military space capability. India's space budget is about $2 billion today annually. So Japan's higher than India. Uh, for, and so what is interesting from a Japanese perspective is that Japan views space as a very critical component of their civilian capability, but also their national security capability since 2008. And if you see Japanese space policy, industrial development is number one. So they view space as part of their industrial development capability as critical infrastructure, space development, and then also national security, foreign affairs, and science and technology. 
Now, what is very interesting is that Japan last year put out a space mining law. And so the argument that the space mining law put out is that if a Japanese company, for example, if iSpace goes to say the lunar south pole and is able to extract resources on the lunar south pole, it is supported by Japanese regulation. It can keep those resources. And that they argue is within the obligation of the Outer Space Treaty because the Outer Space Treaty does not stop you from utilizing resources. The only thing it does not allow is that you claim sovereignty. And so Japan is actually far ahead. So that only three countries that have space mining legislation are the United States, Luxembourg, and now Japan. And so Japan is actually starting to become a very critical player in creating that space development discourse in Asia. And in China, when I spoke to Liu Xiaoping, who's their, one of their main space lawyer, he pointed out that China is also working on the national space legislation and they might put this out in the next two years. So it'll be interesting to see if China will also have a very similar kind of space mining legislation. Now, Japan also has very uh, advanced space launch capability. In fact, the United Arab Emirates, when it uh, went to Mars, uh, sent its HOPE uh, mission through a Japanese launch system. And it has, of course, the H-1 rocket, as well as the H-2 and the H-2B. And so they're very proud of their launch capability. Now, what are Japan's focus? The moon is very critical for Japan. Japan-India is collaborating through the Chandrayaan-3 mission for India and Japan's lunar program. And so what is interesting is that they both want to build a rover that is going to be able to prospect the lunar surface for resources. So they want to send a rover with instruments that are able to probe into the lunar south pole to see if there are resources like helium-3, the presence of water ice, aluminum, for the basic uh, space utilization development concept that I pointed out. Japan is also part of the Artemis Accords, of course, uh, but what is interesting is that Japan navigates its lunar program between India and as well as between Japan. And then uh, Japan, India are also collaborating in remote sensing, so Sentinel Asia. And iSpace is actually the company that we need to watch, which is a Japanese company. And so if you look at iSpace's website, it argues that at iSpace, we have turned our attention to the moon by taking advantage of lunar water resources, we can develop the space infrastructure that will enrich our daily lives on Earth. And they view the space as a part of a new economy and a new space infrastructure. I find this very interesting because as I said in my earlier uh, slides, Asia seems to be completely changing the discourse on space and basically pushing for the economic return of space, the technology development for their society, and viewing space as critical infrastructure, which has not happened in the United States as, as yet. And uh, the societies in Asia are very much aware of what space development is actually doing to their daily lives. And even if it's invisible, you do not see satellites, the discourse on space is very rich. And there are several young startups that are very much fascinated and wanting to build into that particular ecosystem. South Korea. And so if you look at South Korea space policy and goal, South Korea became uh, the fourth Asian nation to have its own launch system after China, India, and Japan. And so it launched its Nuri rocket this year, which is a three-stage rocket that put its test satellite about 435 miles 
uh, above Earth's surface. And that particular Nuri, uh, the satellite actually transmitted back to an unmanned South Korean station in Antarctica. South Korea also has a lunar program. So the Korea Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter called Danuri, which is in Korean, the moon. Basically, the idea is to search for water ice in the permanently shadowed regions, as well as understand the magnetic field of the moon. And so uh, Danuri is uh, carrying a gamma ray spectrometer, uh, which has already been launched actually called the KGRS that will probe for molecules such as aluminum, silicon, uranium, water, and helium-3. So you can see that South Korea is also very much interested in the moon for its own sake, not as a pit stop to Mars, but because the moon has such strategic uh, rare earth minerals, which they want to ascertain as well as water ice, which is one of the most critical assets if you want to have a human sustainable program. Most people don't really talk about Indonesia and I'm surprised by it because Indonesia is one of the countries in Asia with the most advantageous position because it's very close to the equator. So Indonesia's president basically uh, in a phone call with SpaceX, which is so close to you where you are sitting, basically told Elon Musk that he should actually invest in developing a spaceport that Indonesia is developing for launching some of their his, his rockets because it's going to be much more advantageous and you do not need that much fuel to get to low earth orbit because of the closeness to the equator. Now, Indonesia actually already has space regulation in place. And if you see some of their goals in terms of their space program, which is to build their own launch system to ensure that space activities have a supporting role in the defense of the nation, as well as to ensure sustainability of space activities. And in fact, the Indonesian private space sector is also developing as we speak. And so it's a very interesting country to watch in regard to Asian space programs as well. Now, some of Indonesia's focus area is space science, remote sensing, space technology capability, but also launching. And so for all you know, in the next 10 years, Indonesia might become the fifth nation in Asia to have its own rocket launch systems. And so if you look at Indonesia's National Institute of Aeronautics and Space, which is their space agency, they, want, they have been building a space port in the island of Bayak since 2019. Uh, Indonesian president, as I mentioned before, officially extended an invitation to Elon Musk to build launch sites in this favorable geographic location. He actually made the argument that low cost of launch, no orbital maneuvers required because of the closeness to the uh, equator. And Elon Musk actually responded to the invitation by sending a team from SpaceX to basically look at this particular capability. And then they also want to build their entrepreneurial base. So you can see that in Asia, there is a lot of focus on building their private space sector and playing a very major role in developing the space capacities going into the future. And so uh, what is interesting is that since 2013, Indo Indonesia has their own national space law, which is called the Indonesian Space Act. And actually that particular law basically argues that Indonesian private sector will be monitored and regulated by the state of Indonesia as per the Outer Space Treaty, the Space Liability Convention, and the Convention on Registration of Objects. So they're very much advanced in terms of thinking about the future and ensuring that their private space sector is well regulated. So it's a very interesting development in Asia in terms of viewing space from those three perspectives that I have talked about. One is, Space is not just about technology showing off for a few days, or it's about a country's vibrancy. It's about 
long-term presence, space utilization and development and space resources. Second, space is viewed as a part of a country's economic development, that is larger internal development as well as long-term sustainability. And finally, space is also playing a very critical role in developing national security capabilities. So I think I'm going to stop here and open it up for questions and conversations. So thank you so much for your hearing today. Thank you so much. Uh, wonderful presentation. Excellent. You know, for everybody updated to the uh, uh, global community of space. Uh, so anybody online or uh, here local have any question? Uh, online, okay. Michael raised hand. So, uh, so Michael, we go first. Then it's Mike. Hi. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, I, we can hear. Excellent. You. Okay, I uh, wanted to ask about, I, I work in the space industry, more, but more on the design side, and I wanted to ask uh, a little bit about the nuclear capabilities in space. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, there's a treaty that says we cannot do anything nuclear in space, but uh, it sounds like uh, a lot of uh, nations are developing, I mean, at least benign capabilities like for fuel, but I mean, let, let's say a bad actor, you know, um, disrupts that or with all this development with, uh, you know, anti-satellite, I mean, couldn't uh, a uh, benign nuclear capable satellite become a, you know, uh, uh, a weapon of sorts. So I, I'm, I'm just kind of worried about all these nations developing nuclear capabilities. And then of course, maybe they, some could be hiding other activities, but I, I think I just want to keep it on the surface level of, of what you can expand on about in regards to that treaty and nuclear uh, development in space. Thank you. Yeah, sure, sure. Thank you for that question. So yeah, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 was basically uh, brought about by the US and the Soviet Union because of the concern of nuclear weapons. So uh, the basic philosophy of the Outer Space Treaty is that no country can place weapons of mass destruction that includes nuclear weapons on a celestial body or anywhere in space. So. When it comes to nuclear weapon capability, you are treaty bound not to be able to place any such weapons in space. Now, there is the other side of the nuclear angle as well, which is nuclear energy, right? And so uh, one of India's uh, founding uh, you know, president and uh, the father of India's nuclear program and also a big proponent of space-based solar power, uh, Abdul Kalam, pointed out that the interesting uh, problem with that is that nuclear energy can also offer a lot of uh, capability in terms of human development, but because of the connection of nuclear to this devastating, uh, what happened in Japan in 1945 and the destructive capability of nuclear weapons, anything nuclear human society tends to be very, very concerned. And that's why you have the outer space treaty. But uh, I think what nations are actually interested today is that and not just nations, you have private companies that are interested in this as well, that you can also use, uh, for example, one of the Indian uh, you know, conversations in terms of nuclear uh, capabilities, nuclear fusion, which is a technology that has not been practiced yet. But if in case, let's take a scenario where it is cracked. 
uh, by using helium-3, for example, on the moon. I'm not a rocket scientist. I'm a, I'm a person who studies space policy and international relations. But looking at the conversation, what I see is that what they view is that if you have nuclear propelled rockets, you're able to actually achieve some of the missions, which are civilian missions, to go to a particular planetary body like Mars much faster and human settlement much faster. So they also have that civilian angle uh, that they are interested in developing. And I think if you look at the trajectory of technologies, for example, the internet that we are using today that has democratized so many of us, especially people from the developing world to access uh, good education, uh, better e-banking. The internet was actually developed as a military technology to basically communicate about missile defense by ARPANET and the US Navy. And now it's become a global good that uh, people all over the world depend on to become much more empowered. So uh, one of the most important ways to ensure that nuclear technology that can have beneficial effects is, is that it remains civilian. And I don't think we have the regulatory mechanism as that. We have the regulatory mechanism to ensure that you do not uh, place weapons of mass destruction. But then what happens, as you said, that if a nation uh, is developing a benign technology, but can also use it for military purposes, right? So what happens, who enforces the law? How do you actually uh, regulate such activities, as well as there is this argument that in order to deflect asteroids, you might also new, you need nuclear capability because asteroids are huge. They're coming at fast speed. Uh, they can destroy Earth cities if they come into Earth. So how do you actually deflect it? You can use nuclear uh, technology, but again, that can be used for a military purpose as well. And that is something that space, there is always concern, right? So you might have a very civilian capability, but because of the dual use nature of space systems, they can always be used for a military projection of power capability as well. So, so your question is very relevant in terms of some of the concerns that that raises. Okay, very good. Uh, so Mike, go ahead. Hi, hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, hi. Um, thank you so much. That was a very fascinating presentation. Um, my question is, how does all of this, how does all of this planning um, with the different countries affect US space policy? Specifically, um, is there going to be more collaboration? You mentioned Indo Indonesia calling in Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, I never, I think we who are in the aerospace industry can be kind of tunnel vision on what's going on here in the US. I had no idea all this was going on, but I, I think that it can um, definitely be a benefit to what we're doing here. So I'm wondering if there, you know, if how this is affecting US space policy and, you know, if there's going to be a, maybe more collaboration. Thank you. Yeah, sure, Mike, thank you for that. So yeah, so if you look at the Artemis program that the US has put out, it's actually a program that wants to build that international partnership, right? So already it has about 20 signatory states, including the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Japan, Luxembourg, Australia. Uh, and so uh, it, it's built, Brazil uh, has signed in, Poland has signed in. 
So yeah, there is the capability to develop international collaboration, but uh, what is important is that when it comes to space resource utilization, uh, the Artemis Accord talks about space utilization and uh, utilization on the lunar surface, but it has not been able to build collaboration, for example, by getting India to sign on to the Artemis Accord, which is a major country, but India-Japan has collaboration. So it's interesting that you have collaborations that are in Asia that are happening, but they're not happening across, for example, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Uh, from major countries. The China-US space collaboration is actually not allowed by US law. As you know, there is the Wolf Amendment, which was put into the National Defense Authorization Act by Senator Wolf in uh, 20, 2011, where uh, any space collaboration between China and the US was debarred and, uh, and NASA cannot collaborate. Uh, and the, what is more important is that so when you talk about private space collaboration, uh, US export control laws are very strict. Uh, you have to first get uh, ITR uh, you know, waiver, which is very difficult to get, especially for a small space startup where you need very good legal support and sometimes you cannot afford it. And if you run a mock with that, uh, you can be in a lot of trouble. So the, so the entire regulatory system in the US is such that to collaborate with even I'll say a company from Canada or Great Britain becomes very difficult. So, and so you, we need to actually establish enabling regulation that makes the process of US regulatory activity much more transparent and much more understandable to someone, for example, a company say from India that might want to collaborate with a US company. And so, uh, I would argue that if you think about that from a long-term perspective, there are lots of technologies that require collaboration, right? So for example, space-based solar power, it's a technology that promises so much for humanity in terms of sustainability, in terms of building a renewable energy that is actually going to develop human society and offer uh, people all over the world access to a power source that is uh, affordable and renewable in the long-term. So already you have the European Space Agency that has put out several uh, research projects and uh, interest in building space solar power this year, which means that the European Union is coming together to build that capacity. And uh, ESA wants to collaborate with the US as well as with other countries like India uh, and Asia to build that capacity. So you do have very interesting uh, collaborative efforts that are at a very paper level today but we need to scale it up to a more demonstration phase, right? The United Kingdom uh, through their space energy initiative also is focusing on space-based solar power. And in fact, as we are, as I'm giving this presentation, the International Astronautical Union uh, Congress is going on in Paris and about 170 countries are participating with about 8,000 participants, which is a really interesting uh, development because you have so many countries interested in space you have about 73 space agencies today compared to the Cold War, which was about five. So I would actually say that collaboration would be possible, but only if you could ensure that the national security dimensions of space, the military dimensions of space is very clearly demarcated and we have only civilian collaboration happening. Otherwise countries are very wary of signing on to space projects. So that's sometimes that can be an obstacle. Okay, thank you so much. That was a great um, answer to my question. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your question.
Thanks, Ken. Oh, thank you, Mike. Glad you, you, uh, uh, you know, uh, asked the question. So any, any more questions, you, you're welcome to uh, type in chat or uh, raise your hand to speak out. Um, actually, before you, you, you join us, uh, Nami, actually, we have a conversation with the gentleman here because uh, he was saying that uh, uh, actually India did the, the impact, right? The two spacecraft impact on the moon first. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's not very well known, and nobody actually knew. And uh, some company here they claim they actually did first, uh, but actually India has already done it. So, uh, what is the reason that the Indians' uh, progress and development was not really very well known? Is it something that could be done? Uh, actually, at the way Los Angeles section, uh, greater section, we had uh, actually tried to connect with India for several years. Last year, we have Professor Pant from IIT Bombay give an overview uh, about aerospace development in India. Of course, he himself is, a, you know, the balloon, uh, balloon expert, lighter than air, but he gave an overview of India aerospace uh, development. And then we have uh, uh, Professor Charles Verdi uh, from this uh, University of Petroleum. Uh, it's called the India Institute of Petroleum and Energy. Uh, he also have a, a good program there. Uh, we also try to develop, uh, help them to develop AWA student branches over there. So there, there are some kind of collaboration, but uh, somehow for the public is still kind of lacking. And uh, for example, JPL is working with, with uh, you know, India very closely. I actually been there. I saw uh, the satellite, you know, you know, the working with India, the, you know, ISO, you know, those kind of things. But but it seems to be not very well known. Mm. So. What is the reason and how, how to improve the situation? Yeah, I think that I think it's because uh, the Indian Space Research Organization tended to be uh, very uh, reticent in terms of uh, being more transparent, being more communicative, including being more communicative, not just with uh, outside actors, but into its own population, right? And so that culture was very much intransient because of the bureaucratic setup of India. So coming from India, I can see why communication was lacking, a clear articulation of the impact of India's own satellite capabilities was lacking, because I don't think India at the time thought that was a part of a grand strategic posturing where showing up capability was critical. And I think that could explain, there is, a, there is, a, there is an internal culture of not being too aggressive about one's capability unless you can prove that this is going to add to the long term. So that's one example. Second, you know, in terms of your struggle, in terms of even building uh, ecosystem where there is much more vibrant conversation, I think uh, that also depends on finding the right person as well as, uh, have you tried actually, for example, to reach out to some of the space startups in uh, Bangalore, that's one of the major centers of uh, Indian space uh, space startups. They tend to be much more global in their perspective and much more willing to engage with uh, actors across So I think today the situation is changing though because of the rise of the private space entity, uh, because of the fact that Narendra Modi Pushing for India to become much more active at the public stage. And so that could change. Uh, and maybe uh, the global pressure, as 
vital younger society pressure, younger people getting into the space sector, who's very much about social media, about showcasing capability, and also creative can change the culture to an extent. I'm actually going to India next week uh, to look into this particular ecosystem and understand it more in terms of what has changed in India. And so it'll be very interesting to see how India is actually becoming much more communicative. What I find so fascinating, Ken, is that most people argue that China is not very transparent, that China does not put out its base policy. Actually, my experience has been that China actually is pretty articulate in especially through their own space scientists and the head of their missions in their space programs and their space policy and what they intend to do in the next five to 10 years. In fact, much more in the next say 20, 30 years, right? And they put it out there in terms of what they are hoping to achieve. India is starting to become like that. But I think that bureaucratic culture, that culture of uh, secrecy still is there in the Indian ecosystem. And I think that could explain why there was not so much communication feedback in regard to successes. Yeah, actually, according to uh, the lecture online by Professor Pan from IIT Bombay, and he showed a lot of great, you know, even private industry, you know, space industry in India. So it, it seems to be booming, doing good jobs, you know, but yeah. it's not very well known. But uh, yeah, your explanation is very good. Uh, actually, I have more question, but you know, there is a key in the Q and A box. Stephen uh, asked a question. Stephen, do you want to speak out? You, you are enabled. You can unmute your microphone. Go ahead, Stephen. Uh, Mr. Alexander, go ahead. Can you speak out? Well, it looks like I see his question. Do you want me to read it out so that everybody hears it? Yeah, please, please read it. Yeah. So uh, Stephen actually asked a question you're, in your presentation. For the first time, I've heard about China's Belt and Road space. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what China's vision and goals are for that? So uh, so this is a very good question because uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative I wonder, okay, I'll, I'll speak to that. So in, in terms of uh, China's Belt and Road uh, Space Information Corridor, so this is part of China's Belt and Road Initiative that was established in 2013 by President Xi Jinping. So the idea is that it's basically influenced by China's historical Silk Route and Silk Road, and which uh, was a very major trade route for China in the ancient world, including reaching out to Africa, Central Asia, Europe and South Asia. And so the Belt and Road Initiative today is funded by about $100 billion from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is headquartered in China. And so the Belt and Road Space Information Corridor is part of that larger Belt and Road Initiative. And the idea is that China is going to use its space capability, like space launch systems, capturing capability, navigation. China has its own Baidu navigation system, uh, which offers uh, satellite data for the exact services that the global positioning system does in the course. And so the idea is that the Belt and Road Spatial Information Corridor is going to enable countries in Asia, Africa, that does not have very high levels of capability, to be able to launch, if they want, their satellites or build space capacity. Mm -hmm. With the capacity with the help of China. 
and China's Delta Road Spatial Information. So that is what China's Belt and Road Initiative is. The concern about the Belt and Road Initiative, including from India, is that it's a way that China is also building influence in the international system because it's led by the Communist Party of China, as well as the fact that some of the contracts that China signs with the countries that are members can have very predatory influence because you give loans, but then have very high interest rates. And that can result in countries defaulting, like Sri Lanka defaulted, for example, and that can lead to economic downturn. That's what the Belt Road Initiative, special information corridor. Is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I saw that Mike has a comment about this uh, issue we discussed about the India uh, statistics are not very well known. Can you kind of comment that it might be due to some kind of the uh, U.S. contracts uh, that that could be. It, it was true, actually. Professor Pan lecture. He actually talked about actually several uh, U.S. aerospace company had a presence in India. And actually, that was a very big surprise. You know, I don't want to mention the company information, but there are several very well known big uh, American aerospace company actually had a presence over there uh, through some kind of uh, collaboration, but in the they are present there. It's kind of interesting. Uh, so, anybody here who do you want to ask any question? Well, I know they are very interested. Yeah. Go ahead. I've been thinking hard how to frame the question. Uh, my, my question do, do, has. Do you want to show your face or not? Uh, sure. <laughs> because I, I respect your privacy. No, it's fine. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you. Yeah. yeah see you too. It's, uh, it was a great presentation. My question has to do with uh, many of these countries are posting a lot of goals, but when you look at the amount of dollars that they have in their annual budget, um, it seems that some of the goals aren't terribly realistic. Uh, Indonesia does have a space program, but with $205 million annually, they want to have launch capability. Um, my question is how? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. But think of it, India developed a launch capacity with $500 million investment or lesser in the beginning, right? So how? Because the uh, ability to manufacture is very cheap. The ability to employ uh, space scientists is not very high. Uh, for example, an Indian space scientist at a very senior level makes about $1,200 a month. A NASA scientist at the basic entry level makes about $10,000. A lot of the budget goes into employment, health coverage, whereas in the Indonesian or Japanese, or Japan actually has a bigger budget, but in the Indian uh, and Indonesian context, uh, the dollar value might be less, but the ability to retain talents, the ability to manufacture is so cheaper, much cheaper, it can be actually happen uh, and can actually achieve it. So uh, India's budget till they were able to, in fact, with a $1 billion budget, India was able to do a Mars mission, two lunar missions. Uh, India was able to uh, develop their own uh, navigation uh, capability. They were able to confirm the presence of water ice on the lunar surface in 2008 through the Chandrayaan-1 mission. And that's because the, uh, as I said, 
the manufacturing of the rocket, the manufacturing of the orbiter is much more cheaper. In the US, I think the capital investment in just uh, employing someone in manufacturing is very high. That's the reason why you can actually think about them achieving that. Right. I suppose there must be some kind of a multiplier that has to be a, yeah, right. Also, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Indians were also first to verify the uh, lava tubes on the moon, uh, which is a, which is a very good accomplishment that they, yeah. the, the Apollo missions had suspected that, uh, that the lava tubes existed, but it was only after in 2007, when they got the, they got the actual footage showing the skylights open. I was a bit surprised that all the effort for the moon, uh, for going back to the moon is focused on the South Pole when uh, it would seem to me the, the more attractive option would be to go and to the ready-made shelters in the lava tubes that already exist at the equatorial regions. But, yeah. yeah, I think I, I, have, I have had, uh, I've seen a lot of presentation on the lava tubes and I, actually it's very interesting you say that uh, uh, that the Indian mission I mean, the Indian mission that you're talking about, the Chandrayaan-1 mission, uh, basically it had a NASA mineralogy mapper. Paul Spudis was basically the designer of that. And that particular NASA mineralogy mapper confirmed the presence of water ice on the lunar surface uh, and in conjunction with the Indian mission. So I actually didn't know that the Indian mission was the one that confirmed the presence of lava tubes. That's a very interesting data. Thank you for giving that. That's true. I, I may be wrong, but I believe that's true. There was not direct evidence. There was only uh, indirect evidence, just based on the geography, based on flyovers. But the resolution during the Apollo era was very limited, and they were very focused on getting uh, as much localized data as they could to, to achieve the landing without failing. And it's taken only now into the modern era to get, we, we have better maps of the moon than we've, than we've ever yeah. had. Yes. As, yeah, the Clementine mission gave us very good maps of the moon. And so, yeah, thank you for that, because I agree with that, because I have seen, I've seen some of the footage and the maps uh, that Dennis Wingo actually was trying to put together in uh, Mountain View. Uh, and so, uh, and he actually has now developed this very interesting map of where the sources of the moon are, like helium-3, or just by those particular uh, photographs and images that have been taken. And the resolution seems to be getting better and better now. So, so and I, I, it's interesting you make that point, right? So, you think about the lava tubes uh, and think about developing, uh, you know, settlement capability there. Then your focus should not necessarily be always the south, right? So, that's a very interesting point you make. It's. It, it was in, it was in, there's merits to going to the south lunar pole but it does seem a more challenging destination than just simply landing at the equator when and having a shelter waiting for you and yeah. all you need the lines and, and the ability to secure those lines to go down and undercover but, yeah but most nations are focusing on the south pole china is focused on the south pole the us is now focusing on the south pole they want to land the first uh, human presence in the South Pole by 20. The date is keeping on going back from 2026 to now 2028. Uh, and so there's that focus. India is also interested in the South Pole. In fact, in 2019, India came very close to landing very close to the South Pole and failed in the last few seconds. Uh, uh, Israeli private uh, company, I think Bereshit, 
also was very close in that year and failed in the last the Israelis, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're actually going back again. So, uh, yeah, the South Pole seems to be becoming the strategic real estate of the lunar resources uh, source today. Right. South Korea is also interested in going there. Yeah, I also have the indirect feeling that uh, India dis discovered first uh, lava cube. I think that's true. I think it's true. I think they, they came up with the first direct evidence of it. But I don't think it made uh, I don't think it made national news. But it was. I, I think there are quite a few articles about Indian achievements in the news, but I just don't think that the general public lacked. I think the general public usually lacks the context for it. Uh, it's not. It, it, Usually takes those of us uh, who are, you know, passionate about the subject to uh, to realize the implications. But uh, yeah, because I, I agree with you because lava tubes and what it actually means has not yet made it into the popular imagination, right? Like the right. water ice concept or the helium three concept, people get it, right? Okay, water ice you can break it down into hydrogen, use it for fuel. Oxygen can be used for sustaining life, right? But right. lava tube concept, yeah. Yeah. Said, yeah. Once you have the tremendous energy supply to render it into that form, that, that doesn't get a lot of discussion about just how easy it is to utilize the water ice. But it's known that the water ice is the resource. So. Yes, it's the, it's the most important focus priority. I, th I see the I see Michael and Mike's hands up again. Before that, actually, I have a good, good uh, proposal that maybe you and uh, Nami can put a list of India's uh, accomplishments. And then we'll post it our Yanaboy newsletter. I, I think she I think your list is quite good. I just <laughs> I just wanted to add one to that. I and I believe it's true, but please you, you could probably get to the bottom of that faster than I can. Yeah, I will. I will actually look into it because I am interested in lava tubes and uh, I understand the implication of that. So thank you for yeah. that. So I'll look into it. Okay. Uh, the, 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 the Amar has a question. So Mike and Michael, wait a look. So go ahead. You want to show the how to share it? Go ahead. Uh, hello. Uh, my question um, has to do with China and China's current uh, budgetary concerns. We're, we're seeing in the news uh, possible, you know, very serious economic uh, fallout of their you know, policies in the real estate sector. Yeah. Um, real estate is about 30% of China's uh, economy, and uh, they're having problems. There are uh, literally tanks around the banks uh, protecting the banks so that people you know, don't charge in and demand their money uh, while people are having to pay mortgages. So there's that going on. How how do you see that playing a role in China's uh, future, whether, whether it's military or space development? Um, where, where do you see this, uh, what's happening now, um, rippling into the future and the present and the future of their of their space program and their you know giant space ambitions? Yeah, sure. So uh, one way that you can understand the Chinese commitment to their space program is that this is not the first time China has faced internal upheaval, and despite that, continued to fund and support their space science. So when during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, almost all, almost all scientists, professors were targeted because they did not now view them as not having ideological fuel. That was even more damaging than what's happening in China today in terms of some of the real estate issues that they face. 
Despite that, what was so fascinating was that the space scientists, they were put under the People's Liberation Army and they were protected. And so they continued to invest in their space capacity and I think the China and they had the tenements where in 1989, there was a huge, actually, there was a lot of rebellion within China at the time that China needs to develop their societal capacity, their property. They should not be investing too much money for the 91 project, which is their project, which they achieved by the continued to invest in their ambitious goal of space flight and achieved it uh, very close to the pipeline that they have set. One of the important uh, patterns that continued in China's investment is COVID. During COVID, China also faced internal issues, lack of supply chain, and inability to develop some of the uh, capacity in other technologies that they talked about. But then, Two of the three of the space programs that they had invested pre-COVID were actually launched on vital And so one was their uh, Chang'er 5 mission, which is the mission that brought back samples from the moon. And then they announced four other very ambitious missions right at the time when they were having a huge inflation issue because of COVID supply chain challenges. And then the second was their Mars mission. So the argument that I heard was that China will not be able to launch their Mars mission because of much more constraint on their budget than they face today. COVID and the world and the United States basically uh, at that time under the Trump administration calling out the Communist Party of China for what they did. Despite that, they met their Mars mission on China. And then they announced another mission uh, just after they achieved their Mars mission. So I think even if you see such societal upheaval, certain projects have national priority and national focus and long-term planning and budget already allocated. And so because of their five-year plan, they've already allocated this much money for their space program, right? So they already have that in their plan. But I do not see the kind of developments you see today having an impact on their space program. I might be proven wrong because people can but then people have been writing about the collapse of China for so long, it's not planning out. Much more modern China has written about it, the collapse of China, real estate bubble happened before. Doesn't seem to have affected the country. We have to wait and see. Great, thank you. Okay, so maybe uh Mike Mike. Hello? Hi again. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Um, so my question is, I'm not a scientist, um, but I understand that in order to launch vehicles to go to the moon or Mars, they need to be done at a certain time and it's very limited on when it can happen. So my question is, are there any places on Earth that the US may not want to be able to collaborate, may not be able to collaborate with, that is like totally at an advantage of launching vehicles? Or are there places in general that are just much more advanced, 
much more there's a much more advantage of launching vehicles because i'm wondering you know if all if all these countries are competing to go to the moon is are certain countries going to have like a uh be like a resource to be able to launch vehicles just because of where they are um geographically thank you yeah, I mean, there are the countries by the equator, right? That Somalia, for example, is very close to the equator. Indonesia is very close to the equator, and they provide advantageous position. And actually, I found it very interesting that the Indonesian president uh, decided to call Elon Musk and not the president of the United States to call for a level of bilateral collaboration. And Indonesia and the U.S. actually has a good relationship, including within the special forces. So yeah, there are uh, there are certain countries, uh, those close to the equator, that are advantageous. And actually, now this is a, you actually ask, ask a very interesting question because this uh, this phenomenon of developing spaceports is a very new phenomenon, and so uh, countries are only now starting to realize that their own advantageous position, including the African Union. Uh, African Union has not established an African Space Agency in Egypt, headquartered in Egypt. Uh, they argue that they're going to use their some of their country's advantageous position close to the equator to develop spaceports and offer that as a lease to other countries or private sector to basically launch. And so I think in the future, you will see the development of such spaceports as you have pointed out, a very, a very, very uh, interesting and very critical question. And so I would argue that in the next 20 years, we'll have countries like Indonesia offering their spaceport to a private uh, company in the US to go and launch uh, their vehicle, for example, because it's much more advantageous, requires less fuel, uh, much more cost effective. Uh, Somalia might be able to develop it, but Somalia, the complex situation has to be much more stable. Uh, and so you will see the development of spaceports around the world. And in fact, that's why I always, I wish I had that particular uh, graphic, which I didn't show, is that if you look at the world today and the world in, say, 1999, uh, it had about 10 space agencies. Today, in 2022, you have 76 space agencies. You have a huge exponential rise of private space sector. So uh, the world you're talking about uh, is coming. It remains to be seen if the U.S. can take advantage of it, because as I said, the discourse in the U.S. still very much remains a discourse about space exploration, space science, geopolitics, sending a particular person to the moon for a few days and bringing them back, the Artemis program, for example. Uh, it is not about the kind of programs that China or Japan uh, or even UAE, the United Arab Emirates, is talking about, which is a long-term vision for space development and space settlement. So United Arab Emirates has one of the most ambitious plans. They want to establish a city on Mars by 2117, uh, and uh, that is the 100-year celebration of the establishment of the UAE, and that's in their space policy and program. And when I talk to my UAE colleagues, they point out that basic reason they have such an ambitious space program is that it not only fits them to a program that is far ahead, but actually builds capacity in their society and builds additive capability like 3D printing, uh, autonomous manufacturing, which they're interested in. 
the, the very interesting, very different discourse and space sports will play a critical role. Uh, the US, uh, I don't think has that vision as yet uh, of being able to uh, lease out a space sport or develop, help, help develop a space sport in a country that is advantageous. It should. Thank you. That was all very interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I think Michael, Michael also have hands raised. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to to talk a little bit more about or to to ask you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a uh, just a uh, encyclopedia here uh, for us. And uh, in the case of uh, policy, because I, I know that's your specialty. Uh, let's say uh, it's, it's kind of like the internet, that, that it's growing so fast, like you just said, uh, and then there's issues that, that arise that uh, we kind of have to play catch up on uh, as far as authorities and policy and, and bad actors, uh, you know, for instance, uh, hacking and cybersecurity. So, so I just want to transfer that over to, to space. Uh, I, I have a background in, in military space control. And uh, so, you know, I think, I think to, to speak to the South uh, Pole, you know, and, uh, you know, Intel surveillance, reconnaissance, ISR capabilities. I think a lot of development is, is not being talked about in, in the military sector. I, I know there's weariness, but let's, let's just say, you know, low intensity uh, actions or uh, aggressions, or even in the case of accidents, uh, you know, I, I heard from you earlier on that there's a space Congress, but, w but what really is the authority in, in these cases of, of uh, you know some, some you know some cyber actions or uh, physical actions in places we can't see uh, in the near future, um, and even with mining and, and like I said, asked earlier with, with nuclear uh, capabilities, just just you know who where's the teeth and and who what international body is really has the authority to, to bring people together and hold them accountable. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, the, let's, let's tackle the last part of your question first, right? So what international body can actually uh, hold someone accountable? So uh, first of all, if it's a private company, then the country that the private company is registered to is liable and accountable. So for example, let's take a scenario that a company X from the US goes to the moon, extracts minerals, and then, and then damages the environment or does something wrong, right? Or goes wrong. But the United States is responsible and liable for that particular country's behavior, particular company's behavior, because according to the Liability Convention and the Outer Space Treaty, the country to which the private entity is registered and which gives the license is accountable. So the US will be responsible. Now, the bigger question you ask is something that I also am actually dealing with now. That, okay, you find someone, uh, okay, you find a country liable and the country refuses to accept its liability. Uh, for example, in a mining, uh, it was mining and it's liable for some, uh, for not allowing another country to come to this place. We don't have an international body with even if you have an international body that is able to deal with that situation, we do not have an enforcement mechanism. And so because of that, it might actually lack the capability to enforce the law. So the, the United Nations Outer Space uh, Office of Outer Space Affairs, the Conference of Disarmament today, 
are actually responding to the United Kingdom. It's, it's, the, it's a General Assembly resolution called 7536 that talks about responsible behavior, military responsible behavior in space, basically saying that you cannot create space debris, for example. Okay, you have consensus on that, but then if countries do not agree and, do, and refuses to not abide by that particular consensus because they do not want to sign on to it, Russia goes and tests an ASAT weapon, which it did last year, uh, you cannot hold it accountable because ASAT testing is is happening. India has tested it, China has tested it, the United States has tested it. And so there is no body that can hold them accountable. Now, there is conversation in the space law community that that is very much required, but it's at a very academic level. You have uh, manuals, the Womura manual from Australia. There is a manual that's coming out of Canadian academic space that talks about how do you assert responsibility? How do you host it liable for bad behavior? And so, uh, but these are all on the civilian side. The, the point you make about, uh, for example, uh, this lunar space, the space between the Earth and the Moon, right? So the Lagrange points are very critical. Uh, we have a Chinese relay satellite on the Lagrange point too. And, and the other concern is that once you have Chinese presence, say for example, on the Earth-Moon space, it can look down uh, into geosynchronous orbit. And in fact, if it comes from above, in a satellite capability or counter space capability, you would not know because you're not looking towards that, you're looking down to Earth. Now, in that in that situation, who can come as a response mechanism? For example, uh, another scenario, which I actually play out with my students, is that you have a, a US company that is present on the moon, American citizens are in a mining operation, and then you have a disaster. Have a disaster and you need to respond. In the ocean, uh, it's the US Navy. In the US territorial waters, it could be the Coast Guard. So the argument is made that the US Space Force uh, should be the entity that should come to the defense of American citizens and rescue. They will have the capacity to But I do not see that their I, I, the only thing I see their mission sets is basically satellite or to joint warfare and joint operation. Because they're not looking out and thinking about the future, they might not have a capacity. That's a concern that I sometimes grapple with all the kind of activities. So, Michael, you are in the right path in terms of thinking about the strategic value of space, if something goes wrong, who enforces it. Uh, which entity has the piece to enforce it? These are questions about the of the people. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. All right, so any more questions? All right, so uh, with that, let's thank uh, uh, Navi today, Dr. Goswami. It's a wonderful presentation. And by the way, Madhu, say hello to you. Uh, he cannot make it here. Uh, but uh, Madhu is a professor of USC. Uh, yes, I know. I know he's in Paris right now, so it's late night for him. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, that's wonderful. So stay in touch. This is a very exciting, and stay in touch. about space policy uh, is definitely one of the main topics for AIW. AIW is very strong in space policy. If you look at AIW.org, it's everywhere. Um, but of course, uh, you know, things like India, China, you know, those 
robotic is very important for the uh, new space activities. So thank you so much again, Daskar Swami. Really appreciate staying in touch. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for having me, a great honor. And uh, you'll be posting this uh, online. Yes, yes. Okay, all right. Thanks, thanks for your permission. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for the great questions asked. I really enjoyed myself. Have a, a good night. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Bye bye. <laughs> I think we can uh, turn it off too. Can you have lunch?